Welcome to the Don't Overthink This podcast, where we explore and connect ideas about overthinking it. I'm Brian Heath. And I'm Ross Jackson. Well, Dr. Heath, it's been a while since we've talked about a topic of this nature, and I've been thinking about it a lot and uh, want to get your thoughts on this uh, topic. So the phrase organizational change gets used a lot, and I'm not really sure what, if anything, specifically is is meant by the phrase. So when, when you hear the phrase organizational change, do you primarily think of that in terms of people within an existing structure do similar things, but they do it differently? So that's like a micro change. Or is it a wholesale cultural or structural reimagination of the organization? So is, is cultural ch- or is organizational change a, a micro level phenomenon or is it a macro level phenomenon? I definitely think it's a micro. I don't know of any organ. I mean, maybe people talk about it in a sense of it's supposed to be the structural big change, but I've never, ex- I've never experienced anything close to that. It's always just been like, we're going to change. And then maybe there's a slight shift in who reports to who, but the business continues as it is. So that's been my experience too. I, I My experience is it's a very micro procedural level change, not a structural level change. And so then my, my second question to you is, why is this a discipline? Why is this a thing of focus? I mean, if, if the focus is on minor procedural changes, one, is that really that hard to change? Is there that much resistance? And who cares? My suspicion is they that the it's a focus because people feel like they have to do something. And I think there's this idea that if you're not doing something, you're not doing your job. And so my guess would be that people have to feel like they have to make their mark with some sort of change. And even minor stuff they can hold up as a victory. So maybe that's part of it, but I don't think there's, I really think it's a big, so what at the end of the day, I've not seen an organization truly shift and change, I'd say ever. Now, do you, do you think that giving it such a lofty and and weighty uh, title like organizational change, which, which to me, I think implies structural change that, that it is in fact, on a scale that some aspect of the organization itself is changing, not some micro processes within the organization. Do you think that presenting it that way, but then packing it with all these micro procedural changes is a distraction from organizational change in the structural sense? I mean, do you think that there is perhaps a motive by the status quo to present this all, all of this change is difficult and, and we're doing it on a micro level and all of that is sort of a distraction from or a way to dissuade people from changing the structure because they're like, if it's this hard doing the micro processes, there must be zero chance to change the structure. I think it's an interesting conjecture about, because those micro changes are typically harder than, you know, as you said. And so maybe it is a big like, well, it's that hard to change this and be really hard to change the structure. 
you know, I, I could view that as being an open a strategy that is is employed that is mainly a, probably a distraction, either from the organizational change that itself of the structure, or just uh, a distraction from what's really going on, uh, what's really happening, the the game behind the game um, of climbing the ladder, of competing, of who's going to win, how how things are going to work, and. It, it's almost like the idea of we're going to make an organizational change is 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 a strategic gameplay within the organization implemented by managers seeking something higher. So, so in incorporating analysis into this picture, do you think analysis, as it is currently and predominantly manifested in organizations, acts to um, support or critique the status quo? I suspect that most of the time it supports. And that's partly because of the, of where analysis sits within the organization, the relatively little power that analysis has within the organization to actually make a change. Now, that being said, I think the analysts would very much like to challenge the status quo. I mean, a lot of what analysis ends up doing is questioning why you're doing something the way you are. And typically the answer is, we are not sure, maybe we should do things differently. And so it's sort of this weird sort of cycle where the analysts would probably advocate for structural change, but they're positioned to also know that their role within the organization is to report to their boss and their job isn't necessarily to implement any change. Their job is to make their boss look good and to support them on the direction very rarely will you have an analyst that's in a position to provide an organizational assessment and critique in and of itself that isn't that is a, a response to the organization, not a response that's within the hierarchical structure of the people they're reporting to. Yeah, I think I think that analysis as it's currently implemented and structurally positioned tends to act more as a support for the status quo than than not that that it certainly is conservative in the sense that it maintains the status quo i i think that there's interesting potential for i mean as you indicated is there a more optimal way of doing things is that structurally different and they could present that information but I, I think, you know, analysis is interesting, as you indicated, they're, they're almost never in the position of making a decision. Seldom are they in a position to even advocate for a position. Usually they are just informing deliberations about a topic. So it's it's an interesting position to be that that you the going in assertion is this is just information and do with it what you will. Yeah, I've had a situation, and this isn't to like bolster my analysis capability or anything like that. This is just, I think, probably a common occurrence. But I've had a situation where I've told like one of the head leaders, this is the situation as I see it. Here's why I see it this way. Here's all the flaws of this approach. Here are the alternatives. Here's the reality of where that fits in in the long term. We have a choice. It's either A or B. And A has one implication, B has another, but they both end in maybe a not positive spot, but one maybe has a better angle at the, you know, of maybe a higher upside. 
And so, you know, the response to that was, I really see what you're saying. I understand that this is great. I appreciate your candor. I appreciate your feedback on these sort of things. And let's talk about it through the conversation. They agree and see it. Um, but then they said, but I think we should try to do both of them. And so I knew this was coming. So in my same email, I told them, hey, if we try to do both, we're going to fail because here's all the reasons. Uh, and, you know, there was all, I think, fairly valid reasons. But that part was completely like ignored and skipped over. So it didn't necessarily even matter that I identified their response and critiqued it preemptively. They were still in the same spot of like, well, we're going to do this thing the way I want to do it anyway, even though you would like they logically agree with everything I said. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, well, we have to do that. And so then I also knew this was probably going to happen. So I further went into this email and conversation with saying probably the reality of the situation is that individual and organizational incentives are misaligned. And as a result, we will keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> and so... It was an interesting response of a no response from, on that point. But we went line by line through all my other points. But when I got to the like existential element of what I believe was the closest thing to the truth, that was uh, very much like swept under the rug of being like, I don't like that candor though. Yes. Well, your your uh, your decision between A and B and the person is like, yes, both, you know, as a metaphor, it was, it's like an analyst describing, here's all the benefits and opportunities that are associated with fish. And here are all the opportunities and strengths of birds. And the person's like, that's great. I want a fish bird. Yeah. Yes. And then you tell them there's no such thing. And they're like, you should start, uh, you know, breeding these fish bird scenarios. Yes, maybe you get one of those flying fish, like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think that the organizational change is is a big. As the more we talk about, it, the more I feel like it's a probably the ultimate organizational distraction right now. As you said, they, as we kind of talked about, they it's a distraction towards minimal shifts, and because as humans, I think we're very good at noticing minute differences and then making them huge deals. Like if you were to look across things, like we look at all the differences, you know, and our brain sort of like is great at identifying differences and patterns and stuff like that. And so you, we can say organizational change and because of the lexicon of our, and then sort of like the semantics and the looseness of our language, we see like minute change. And, and because we notice that minute change very easily, oh, so-and-so reports here, or this form has three fields instead of four, like it used to have. So there's there's definitely by definition a change, but the definition of change is so loose and so simple. And we're so great at seeing any sort of change that, you know, you could easily be, you know, tricked into believing that the change was significant. But I think it's very much a uh, very minimal change happens uh, right, in organizations. Right. If, if, you, if you increase the precision of your measuring instrument enough, any change can be statistically significant no matter yes. how small, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's a matter of, are you measuring with a micrometer in order to assess significant organizational change? And, and it's sort of, to me, I would start with like an if then, right? If, if organizational change, if the domain of organizational change is on these micro process levels, 
who cares? I, I, I really, I mean, so what if you're 2% more efficient or, you know, I mean, it, it, it to me isn't even remotely interesting to show that a difference exists in that space. It, it, it to me would be much more meaningful to assess, you know, how is this working for people, right? It's, it's functional, it's operational. It, it, it will lurch forward evidently indefinitely. But is this lurching forward indefinitely enriching to the people involved with its lurching, right? It is, are the people working there, is the society better off in some important measure? And to me, linking organizational change to those metrics would, would then be a very powerful field. Why don't you think organizations care about the individual or just, or care about society or care about those things that would mean that they care more about the a broader change than just the the micro changes. Well, I think I mean at the at the end of the day, I would say that philosophically and detached, many or most people would say that they do care about those things. They care about the society that they're in, the community that they're in, the people that work there. And so, so on one level, I, I would say let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they either think that they do care or they in fact actually do care, right? So, but even with that benefit of the doubt, it's not the primary way that their performance is assessed and therefore towards which they're incentivized, right? I mean, that in, it would be a very rare company that, that made that the central portion of how somebody's assessed. And at the end of the day, I think people do, you know, for the most part, people do what they're incentivized to do. So it's it's just the structure and the incentive structure within that structure that that I think takes people who one step removed do care about people, do care about the community, are pro-social, are good people, and that the slightest amount of incentive will will make them abandon everything that they espouse as being important. Yeah, I think that's that your incentive observation is very is very on point and it's amazing how little it takes so i know you there's like these um famous psychological studies right and stuff or prison experiments and all that sort of stuff or it doesn't take much to convince good people to start beating up on lesser people <laughs> like it it literally just takes like uh, uh, someone to say you're in charge and here's a here's a badge and 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 here you're not in charge and um, and it doesn't like there's even any money involved. It could just be that simple. Uh, well, it's, the caring kind of goes away. Yeah, I, I think in a previous episode, you you made reference to the anonymous nature of online chats and how people will will very quickly become quite vicious within that anonymity. And that the, the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment, where the you know random selection into uh, prisoner and guard, uh, they, I think, showed that, you know, basically just having the mirrored sunglasses for the guards gave them enough anonymity uh, that, that, that they were, that they felt safe in being quite abusive. And, you know, whether it's a physical thing like, uh, you know, mirrored sunglasses or, or sort of the online protocols and avatars that people can, can create, I, I think that, 
that promotes very antisocial behavior as opposed to pro-social behavior. I think another element I would say is that caring is, I think, harder than, than not caring, I would say. And especially in spaces where it's not necessarily like survival, um, like maybe like a family or, a, you know, like maybe like a tribe type situation. When you're just working with people in these massive organizations or even smaller ones where they're just like, you know, at any moment they could be gone, you could be gone. It really doesn't matter much for you to care takes a level of investment that maybe people just don't have to give. Yeah. So I th- I think that there's, you know, there's like a, a positive feedback loop and a negative feedback loop. And, and I think that it propels people in, into one of two very divergent camps, right? One is, oh, this, the, I'm getting beaten down. I'm fatigued. And that's a very negative cycle where, where it compounds. But then, you know, I think people who break free of that, people who have the degree of positiveness within, not not from what necessarily is going outside, you know, that's a very energizing thing. So, so it's sort of if if one can push in the direction of caring and and thinking, you know, this is important, the the very act of being engaged in that organization, which is fatiguing for the person in the negative loop actually becomes uh, uh, energizing for the person in the positive loop. And and I think that that's, you know, something that the human mind does more than the organization supports or prohibits. Yeah, those, I think those loops are key and it's easy to kind of flip them between. The other piece that I've been contemplating a lot is just the, it's a different level of caring, but I don't know how many people contemplate and think about these things at all and the percentage might just be very small and so i just and so i I kind of struggle with like well how many people are really contemplating the end point that maybe you and i have contemplated or are at or are developing towards um whatever that means but it's not where most people end up landing most people from my understanding of like adult development stop at like 14 and their thought process and the level of sophistication of where they're at. And I don't know at what point, how do we engage a further deeper understanding or appreciation, or is it already, does it exist at that level? And we just have to like push to organizations to acknowledge it. And then people kind of come along on the journey. You know, it's, it's sort of, the notion that one finds what one is looking for. So if most, I I think within our society, most of us are socialized to view work in highly transactional terms, that it's, I'm going here, they're giving me an income and benefits, and I'm looking for this job in order to make some amount of money. And, And what is the transaction that takes place? Within that notion, I I don't know that people are looking at work as a means of self-expression or a means of accomplishment. You know, the the sort of default is I show up, I do something, I get money. It's, It's very difficult to find the desire for self-expression within that structure. So I would be I would be very interested in how 
you know, artists and artisans would would result in this assessment versus people that work in in large corporate organizations and and see if there's a difference in in the mindset of, you know, do they find work as enriching or is it just transactional? Yeah, the live to work, work to live sort of uh, distinction there. One thing it kind of made me think about as you were talking about that was, you know, at least uh, when I was a kid, I don't know if they do it anymore, but maybe they still do. It's like, hey, you can uh, be anything you want to be. Is that one in a direction of trying to encourage people to embrace more of the like, hey, work can be an expression of you. And it just kind of falls apart as you get older and you realize that, no, you can't be and do anything you want to do. There's a lot of restrictions and a lot of luck and other things involved. Like, is it the right path to try to do that? And, uh, or is it just like, hey, that's that's just a, a nonsensical thought that we shouldn't inject into the youth? Well, so so that's, it's, an, it's interesting. So I would say both. And, and here's what I, what I mean by both. So I think early development, you know, preschool, nursery school, early grade school, it's it's good to, to tell children you can do anything you want. You, you, you could be president of the United States, you could be an astronaut, you could be a, a police officer, you, you know, doctor, lawyer, whatever. Um, I, I think it's good at young ages to not pigeonhole children and, and to open up the the full spectrum to their imagination. But as as they develop and show aptitudes or lack of aptitudes, you know, somewhere in high school, probably, may, maybe sophomore year of high school, you know, it, it becomes clear that not any <laughs> career is possible for for somebody. And, and at that point, I think a more realistic but positive, right? I mean, it, the notion is, wow, you seem really good with your hands, you know, and, and in the subtext, not at all good at book learning. Here's a lot of great vocations and and society needs them and they pay well, right? There's, there's nothing negative with that path. Um, I, I think that as a society, we would be better served if, if we had, we, we start with the sky's the limit and over time, it gets refined to, you know, here's where your aptitudes and talents lie. Maybe you would find this fulfilling. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think we should ever preclude people, right? If somebody has a deep ambition and, and a lot of tenacity, um, you know, let them slug their way through and, and achieve the, the battle that they want to achieve, even, even though it's horribly inefficient. Um, I would I would never want to preclude it, but I I think as a society we would be better served to let people dream ambitiously and then focus in in a place that perhaps they have fulfillment. I, I do think that the element you're hitting on it makes sense. You know, you don't want to necessarily straight up tell kids like, look, your you know your parents are poor. That means you're going to be poor. Forget about give up hope. You know, that's probably not something you want to tell a kindergartner. For a variety of many reasons. And I think that maybe the narrative's always been there to make that transition, or maybe it's kind of piece there. But I wonder if the intentions are positive, but the outcome doesn't necessarily get us to the spot where maybe we want it to be. I just, I mean, you know, I don't know if that's the only element of it, but I, I get the sense that 
once you've sort of like had your dream of being an astronaut and then, you know, your vision's bad. So now you can't be an astronaut. Are you then, because you were so, it was so pumped up that maybe at that point you're like, why even bother? Like now work is a pure transaction and the idea of fulfillment is not really discussed because it's about like, I was already feeling fulfilled. That was my path. And now it's not there anymore. And it's almost like, how do you coach the recovery, the inevitable fall of your dreams not working out for you? Right. Well, and, and I think that, you know, I mean, people change and things don't deliver. So, I mean, the, the sort of psychological and existential work of, of dealing with that happens either initially when one doesn't get in or, you know, somewhere mid-course where somebody's in and it and the dream didn't deliver and they want to redefine themselves. You know, the, there's also that sort of navigation of what does this mean and you know, do I just uh, stop caring and and stay on this course, or do I try to redefine what it is that I'm doing? So, I, you know, I think that there's there's several points of what what I would consider to be uh, existential check ins of you know, hey, how's it going? Yeah, and maybe that's one of bringing it back circle is that you mentioned changes that are happening as a, as you grow up and you learn new things. I don't know if organizations, when they think about change, obviously they uh, are, I don't know if anyone's asking them, hey, how, how, you, how you do an organization? Are you actually changing? Or are you just shuffling the deck chairs? And I would say they haven't started to be asked that yet. How do we start asking that question? I, I think that we uh, do it uh, Monday. Awesome. Black Jackson, it was great talking with you. I think we're at the top of our time today. Any parting words? Have a great couple of weeks, Dr. Yee. You too. We will uh, be back in a few weeks. And if you enjoyed this content, please feel free to join us over at don'toverthinkthis.net. We have multiple posts daily. Thanks, everyone.